Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Dave has spent the last 10 years of his life helping leaders use technology to enhance their business value. For seven of those years, it was in the outsourcing space, where at Venusaurus, they built hundreds of applications for companies ranging from employee number one to his old employer, Microsoft. In 2012, a friend of his came to him with an idea to solve a simple mission, make employees happier. And with that was the birth of Tiny Pulse. At Tiny Pulse, they helped over hundred, or sorry, over a thousand companies around the world discover how their team members are feeling and performing. Four years ago, he had the privilege of joining the entrepreneur's organization, EO, where currently he is championing a new chapter in Saigon. Through this group of amazing individuals, he's learned so much about how fellow members run their businesses. Saigon has also been amazing to Dave, and like many others, he's fallen in love with her. So it brings him great pleasure to harness his life experiences and work with successful companies as they set up shop in Saigon and build amazing teams. Dave, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to this. I remember when Dave uh, brought you on board. I remember sitting sitting with Dave in Seattle, um, and this would have been around October of 2012, I think it was. Um, did you join just shortly after that? So I, yeah, so in 2012, I, so basically I've been here since day one because when we had the idea, you know, we built the product together, I joined officially about a year or so later, so probably 2000. Halfway through 2013. Yeah, because I remember I remember sitting with him late October 2012 at the Hyatt in Seattle, and he was talking about you coming on board and um, explaining explaining you to me. And I was like, I don't know, fuck, I don't understand technology. <laughs> like he knew you and knew the fit. And yeah. knew it was going to be great. So it sounds like you guys have had a great ride. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great ride, but I think also probably the most challenging experience in my career because, you know, we went through this hyper growth and it was super exciting and like, you know, we couldn't do wrong. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you hit this wall and you have challenges. And, and I remember our lead investor, Steve Anderson, with the baseline venture capital, who's one of the premier investors in the world. He's here in our office and one of the uh, staff was like, Hey, is this, you know, is this like really odd that this is happening? Are you really concerned? And he was like, there's not a single company I've invested in that doesn't go through similar challenges. And so I think just like, yeah, it's been, it's been so much learning for me. So it's been an awesome ride. Yeah, I want to find out. So so tell us, first off, before we dive in, because I want to learn about the ride, about the challenges, what you guys have done to overcome them. But tell us just a little bit more about Tiny Pulse so that everyone who's listening knows who they are. Because I've been talking about you guys for years from stages, um, telling people to use your product. But tell us what you, what the product does. Yeah, so so Tiny Pulse, our mission is to make employees happier. And, and like, it was really interesting talking to one of these candidates that we're interviewing right now. And he said, you know, he's like, I have this family of like really smart people. And he's like, in, in 20 years later, he's like, I kind of went the entrepreneur route. I worked for a great startup, <clears throat> Payscale. And he was like, and I've had such an amazing run and nobody else has. And so, you know, so many companies are mismanaged. They don't particularly know how to use employee feedback or care about employee feedback. You know, they might want to do good coaching, but they don't really know how to do good coaching. And so, you know, you get a 
individual contributor who becomes a manager, and then all of a sudden, you know, what, what training do they have? I was actually listening to a um, video from Simon Sinek last night, and he talked about that exact same thing. And so at, at Tiny Pulse, we're trying to provide a platform for leaders to grow happy, high-performing people. And we kind of look at that in, in, in three pieces. And so one is how engaged are you at work? And so we use simple pulse surveys for that, and that's where we started. The second is how are you performing? And then performance for us is a really a – it's a, we try to help managers in this space. So do we better one-on-ones? Do we better goal setting? And then eventually rolling that into doing the evaluation. So we don't actually do the evaluation itself, but we try to help you do all the steps up to where you're evaluating for money. And then the final piece of that is recognition. So are people being recognized for the great things they do? And so we've had a lot of interesting conversations with companies about that mission of make employees happier. And I think it's really only been in the last couple of years where we really put that equation together because I don't know a single person who's got a ping pong table and all these great things that's not performing well, it's happy at work. And so this year, really, our focus is on the coaching side, too, and improving that piece of our product. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the recognition. I think that was the, the first thing that I, I saw you adding on, because I like the initial pulse of the employees to find out how they're feeling, right? It's kind of like a, an employee net promoter score. You get the data, and then you also get their comments around what they're feeling and thinking. That was, that was huge. And then you did this kind of cheers for peers, I think, is your, is your recognition, right? Yep. Is that what it's called still? Yes, that's it. And what I loved about it was this constant feedback loop that was positive. And I was, I was coaching a CEO this morning about it and just saying, like, I don't think as leaders we do enough to say, great job, you know, and thank you and an awesome job with leading on this initiative or awesome job and living this core value. And I don't think we do a good enough job with getting the other employees to do it with each other. And I think that's yeah. really been a huge... Has that been where a lot of the viral growth for Tiny Pulse came from then? Um, not really, actually. So I think what's interesting about cheers is it's, it's cheers for peers, and we really wanted to encourage kind of peer-to-peer cheers. But the, the primary usage of cheers actually has been managers to employees. So it's kind of, you know, even without any focus on that, you know, that really has been it. And I think what we found with cheers, we actually did a freemium offering with it, and it didn't stick. And what we realized is that so much of cheers is driven off, you get, you get your survey, you answer it, then it's like, hey, who do you want to give recognition to? And so we never really cracked this idea of, you know, if, if Cameron did something great, do I even know about it for one? And then when I know about it, like for us, we do stand up. So we kind of do the Vern Hardish, you know, get together in the morning. We talk about wins first. Well, I might hear these five great wins, but I'm, I don't have the app in front of me. You know, I'm not giving cheers. By the time I get back to my desk, do I remember it? And so I think our big challenge for cheers now is if we were to look at it as kind of a standalone thing, is how do we actually get them to be able to be in a place where that when they realize they should be giving a cheers, it's simple to do. And I think right. that's kind of our challenge. And so one of the ways we're tackling that, and I think what makes our one-on-one offering unique is that the way the one-on-one works is that you sync with your calendar 48 hours before all your reports get a pulse and it says, hey, what are you proud of? How do you feel? Give me on a scale of one to five. And then the other one where I think is unique with us is we say, hey, who, who should we who should I be giving recognition to that I don't know about? And so it gives that employee that a chance to say, hey, you know what, Tom over here just did this amazing thing. And then from there, it links it to cheers. So I just hit a button and I say, hey, let's send cheers to that individual, right? So it's really trying to focus on the fact that, hey, managers are the primary driver of cheers right now, but also they don't know a lot of times who to give it to. And so we're really looking at how do we integrate better within our product so that cheers People love it. The NPS is super high when we ever like, ask them how they feel about cheers, but they don't use it as much. And I think because we haven't really solved that problem yet. Yeah. So I think that's one of our interesting challenges right now. Tell me about when in the early days, so back in 2013, when you were um, joining Tiny Pulse and 
Uh, Dave was walking you through his vision for the company. How did you get on the same page with the vision of what he was building? And then how do you stay on the same page now with each other, considering you're living in, what are you, four or five time zones apart? Two, two completely different companies. We're, well, we're literally like 12 hours apart. So it's, it's night and day, literally. So our, our sync times are usually early morning for me, late afternoon, um, early evening Seattle time. So I think getting on the same page was really easy because, again, so... I mean, entrepreneur organization, as a, David introduced me, he was my sponsor. Um, this was one back when I had the outsourcing firm. My first event was actually, well, I don't know if it was my first one, but actually the first time I met you, you might not remember, was in Nashville, and you had a meeting with David scheduled, and I was able to sit in, and uh, you know, I saw you speak, and then I think that was kind of an emotional. We sat in a restaurant or somewhere downstairs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think yeah. you got to send to one that they, they said it was full, but I appreciate that. <laughs> but I remember that was kind of an emotional talk at your part too, and so you know, meeting you was really cool. And um, But it wasn't hard to get in sync because I was there in the New Zealand University when he started his career education. And so for those listening, um, what the founder did was he was getting a bit burnt out of his business, and he didn't understand why, and people management was so hard. So he took six months off packed up his family. We started at this conference in New Zealand and I was there with him at the time. And then from there, he just kind of went around the world, but he, he interviewed entrepreneurs. And at the end of every interview, he would say, hey, if there's one HR problem that I could help you solve that you'd pay for, what would it be? And it was always around that sinking feeling when you lose a great employee and around doing performance reviews. It's, it's just really challenging. And so because of that, you know, I was there along the ride. You know, I'd heard it. He'd always text me, hey, I got this feedback, got this feedback. I'm coming to Vietnam and we're going to build something. And so it wasn't very hard because I was involved from kind of day zero. Yeah, yeah. How do we stay aligned? Um, I don't think that's that hard either because we just literally talk all the time. I mean, we were friends before this thing. Uh, we've been able to maintain a pretty good relationship where we uh, quite often don't have the same point of view on how to build product, but it's always been very challenging, but very respectful. And so, um, you know, we do these really in-depth quarterly business reviews before a board meeting. And so we always spend about 10 days together leading up to the board meeting. So that's why I'm relieved now because it's tomorrow. And so <laughs> we just have to present and that's all that's left. But so, yeah, so um, we just communicate a lot. A lot. Okay, so you said you do a 10-day business area review, or is it you're together for 10 days? It's not formal, but usually I come out here about 10 days before the board meeting, and so we get to spend a lot of time. Like, literally, you know, people ask me, hey, how was the weekend? I'm like, that was great. It was David and I in a room, you know, talking about the board deck, right? So it's pretty, pretty exhaustive, and then he comes to Vietnam four times a year, and I'm in Seattle about six times a year, so we're in person probably 10 times a year at least, you know? Great. So when you're when you're doing that business area review, how do you review an area? What do you what do you look into? Um, so well, we look at all pieces of the business, and each one kind of has its own KPIs. Right now, for Tiny Pulse, um, you know, kind of our challenge has been we started off with a bang. There were hardly any competitors in the space. Um, the performance review companies were separate than the engagement companies. Well, nowadays they've kind of converged. And so pretty much everybody has the vision that we started with seven years ago, which was like happy, high performing. And so you have companies like Lattice or um, uh, 15.5 or company like that that used to only do performance and now they're doing engagement. Then you have the engagement companies like Culture Amp and Glint that now they're doing performance. And so, so it's, it's a crowded space. And so with that, the last, I would say 2017 was probably the first year we encountered churn problems. And so, so now that's been our main focus for really the last few board meetings. And so, you know, our main KPI is, are we 
getting those early indicators to churn, which for us, we have a specific metric on that. And so, you know, that kind of starts it off. And then from there, you know, we look at sales, bookings, we look at, you know, marketing, lead generation, things like that. So we're just reviewing the key KPIs and then kind of what's the, the aha moments, right? And I think one of our interesting aha moments we found last board meeting is we're, we're just diving through a bunch of data to try to figure out, you know, what is supporting sort of these key things we're looking at. And one of them was just days to launch, right? So in the old days, you know, when you first saw a tiny pulse, you sign up for a trial, trial ends, paywall comes up, you've already launched before you even start paying. As we moved into kind of a more sophisticated sales model, the larger companies can't launch like that. You've got to set up their segments and all these things. And so we went from like negative days to launch to like 38 or something like wow. that. So if you've, yeah, so if you paid for what's supposed to be a tiny product and it's taking you 38 days to launch, you're probably not very happy, right? And, and that's kind of... So, you know, that, that was a revelation that comes out of one of these reviews where we're like, hey, why are we having trouble, you know, getting these early indicators? Well, shoot, not even launching. So, of course, a 60-day metric is not going to be very good, right? So, it's, it's usually things like that that we're just kind of deep diving in. And, and like I said, right now, churn is our number one focus. And so, that's really where most of those conversations are. Very cool. So, in the early days, you go back again to 2013-14, you're starting up the company, hiring some of your first people. I think I was at your offices in Seattle one day and there were about 15 total employees there and it seemed big. I was like, wow, there's 15 people. <laughs> awesome. Um, what, what, was, what were you doing back then to get that company kind of launched and to, to do so much with so few people? Um, that would be question one. And question two is, did you learn anything from those early days that you still do today? Yeah, so... So when I joined full-time, I was number eight, and so we were pretty small. And I think we were at, I can't remember how many customers, but in, in the hundreds of customers already. And it was really interesting because that team was like just this really, you know, kind of touchy-feely, great customer success, like super customer-centric, you know, very good at kind of the one-off, like, hey, let's get on the phone with them, let's talk to them. We used to do what we call tiny roundtables where we literally would fly out to a city, get eight to 10 customers together, share best practices. I think that was probably one of the coolest things that we did from a, from a customer success perspective. And then one of the challenges as we grew was how do you scale kind of that kind of thing to use more technology and stuff like that, which, but, but back then I think we did that really, really well. So like, you know, we had one alias, all support came to that alias. The first person to see it would pick it up. You know, it was like super tight and collaborative and, and, and that was fun. You know, that was actually when we had the highest happiness scores of our team. You know, it was like a really happy time. And actually, you were a big influence on us. So our PR strategy was really built around kind of the, the learnings of Double Double and, you know, what we taught David. And, you know, we really treated PR as a sales function, right? And so we would create great content and we were getting great data in and we were the first movers. And so if you look at, I think to this day, press, I mean, we're in like Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal. You know, I think we, we probably have better PR historical than any of our competitors, hands down. And so yeah. that was pretty amazing for us. And I, I remember when the BBC picked up one of our, decided to write something about us. And I can't remember exactly what the content of the article was. We signed up like 80 customers, you know, and it was crazy. Because back then there was so few competition that like, oh, if the BBC said it, you know, we got to go to these guys, right? And right. so... So I think that's, you know, we had no sales people. You just came in, you tried, CS would pick you up. And then when the paywall came up, you put your credit card down and you buy, right? And so, but that, it just got harder over time. And so we went from where we literally had, I think it was a 25% conversion rate if you did a trial to when you buy, which was phenomenal. I remember being in Vegas one time at a EO event with David. He's like, you see this number? This is like how many trials we have. And he's like, 
took 25% on there. That's guaranteed money in the bank in three weeks. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Didn't you start as well in the early days for free as well? Wasn't it a free software? It was, it was, it was, it was never free. It was always a 14-day trial. Okay. Yeah, I remember, I remember something around, some discussion around when we were going to charge people or how we were going to charge people and some nervousness around that. Yeah, the book, my new book, Free PR, might be great for you guys to take a look at now. It's some really advanced strategies on how to, to leverage uh, great publicity to scale the business. And now with all the digital channels, you guys are in a great position. So yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, you got those early stages. Um, and then you went out and raised some money and you've done a couple of venture rounds. Talk to me about that, what you learned through that process. Um, I think that my biggest learning, so we, you know, we had product market fit clearly, you know, we had net negative churn. It was like, you know, you're floating on air, right? You literally think you, we, we landed a huge deal, like a massive client, which you shouldn't have gotten at that size of an organization. Like it was kind of the perfect storm. And so then we raised, I think the first round was three and a half billion. And then when you raise money prior to that, we were pretty much always cash flow break even. And then it was like, well, you got to spend the money, right? And so the first thing you do is you start to scale up and we hired, um, Actually, it might have been in a room similar to this one I'm in now. I remember looking around, and I'm like, man, we got a lot of leadership for the number of employees we have. And we had some really, you know, got really accomplished people in the room. But I think the reality is we didn't hire, I mean, I call it stage appropriate. So for the stage of our company at that time, we had a VP who came in, who, a VP of sales who came in who had like 300 employees, and I can't remember how many millions of revenue, like 200 million revenue or something like that. And all of a sudden, he's got five people. And he thought he would want that challenge, but he really didn't want to go in and coach people and, and really, you know, kind of get dirty with the, the operations. And so and I think we hired a few different people like that. I mean, we had an amazing guy in product, but he'd been a CEO before, you know, and so to come in and have like two product managers or one, I think one product manager reported to him, you know, it was just really hard. So I think that th those people at that stage of their career weren't really ready to, to kind of grow. And then what ended up happening is, you know, the, the, Sales VP comes in, we scale sales really fast, but yet our product market fit at the same time is kind of eroding because you've got different clients coming or different competition coming on board, different needs. You know, HR industry is getting more data oriented than they ever were before. So there are, I think, a lot of factors that, you know, makes me think that if we were to do it again, I probably would have thought about maybe a little bit more junior people, people who really like, you know, wanted to be in the startup grind where we were at that point in time. And yeah. so I think that's, that's probably like the one thing I would have changed at that point. But that's what we did when we got the money. Is we're like, okay, let's get some high-profile folks. Let's help. Let's get them to build teams, and then we'll scale up sales. And we should keep the same churn, but we didn't. And so, and when we didn't, and that churn started to climb, all of a sudden we had problems that we had to start to deal with. Wow. So you're in a rebuild portion on that, then. Yeah, it's interesting on the um, on the early stage employees. They really have to be that jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and then when you start building out that first leadership team. I think it's it's very common to try to go after that seasoned pedigree, but that seasoned pedigree is used to often the big offices and the assistants. And I remember years ago we brought a guy in and, and he was going to come in as our head of marketing. And his first question was, "Who fills out our FedEx slip?" And I was like, "Oh shit, what a miss!" <laughs> right? like, yeah, that's a good, out, good indicator. Yeah, fill out your own damn FedEx slip. Um, yeah. All right, so so. Go back to to um, to the big lessons then from working with the the VCs now because you've got some pretty big name. Who are your investors currently? So we have Baseline Venture Capital, so Steve Anderson. We have um, uh, Harrison Metal, Michael Deering, and then Arthur Ventures is the other one from the Midwest, and that's pretty cool. So Doug Bergen is the uh, uh, but he's 
governor now. So he was originally going to join our board, not thinking he was going to win the governor's seat. He did. So, so his, uh, so James from Marvin Ventures on the, uh, the board um, observer now. And we've got a guy named John Keister. Um, he's pretty awesome, like operations sales guy. And then uh, on the board itself, we have Mark Robert from HubSpot, who's phenomenal. And then Megan Eisenberg, who was a CMO at MongoDB and DocuSign before. So we've got a, I mean, just amazing group of people that came on board. And so I think that to me has been one of my biggest blessings of doing this is the learning that we get from a board meeting. Like it's, it's stressful to prepare for it, but it's so exciting to go into it because it's like, you just get this, you know, like four to eight hour period, like just knowledge spewing and these amazing experiences with these smart people. So I've been really, really, really blessed for that. So how, how do you prep for the board meetings? Um, so it always kind of starts with the last board meeting because the last board meeting we set goals. So we'll lay out that deck. We'll update all those graphs and things that we did and see how we did against the goals that we set. And then from there, like what else did we learn or how do we have to pivot? Is there something that we learned that we're no longer going to do? Or is there something that we see that we're now going to pursue more? So that's typically how it goes. So it's always pretty clear that, you know, from the last board meeting we have some goals. Step one, how do we execute against them? And then step two is like, what do we do different going forward? And then the board meeting is usually about product market fit, financial update. Now those are kind of the two main things. And then growth strategy, right? Do we feel like we've cleared gates to grow or not? So how much have you guys raised? Uh, nine and a half total. So our second round was an inside round. So it was more at that point in time, everybody kind of thought the market was really frothy was the, the, the term that I learned from the VCs. But, and so they said, well, probably now is a good time to, to go out if you want to raise some more. And everybody thought the market would kind of turn, which it really hasn't that much. But um, so we just raised another six million in inside round at that time. Great. All right. So, so now you're kind of looking out into the future. You're, you've got clients in how many countries? I want to say like 38, something like that. Yeah, so they're all over the world. Multiple languages as well for the clients? Um, no, so only English speaking. So actually, this year on our roadmap, we're adding localization. So we added Sony as a client, and that was one of the requirements. And so, but we're only localizing the employee side. So we're not dealing with the, um, we don't have to do like 80% of our app is administrator side. So we just have to get 20% that's employee side. Okay. That's where it'll start to get complicated, right? starts to get interesting yeah <laughs> yeah okay so so scaling up now so your churn is your big focus so what are you doing around churn then um so what are so the early indicators and what are you doing to fix it yeah so so mark Robert, she's one of my you know kind of, he's so instrumental in like helping us around these things so he was saying at hubspot you know what they found was they could predict churn pretty well but and i remember i forgot the name of the ceo but i remember watching him at saster and he was like you know like we could predict churn, no problem. So we knew once they got to the stage, if they weren't doing these things, they were gone. But the problem was it was too late. You know, so by the time we knew they were leaving, so we had to like really go to the first 30, 60 days. And so what Mark preaches is like, if you can't figure out in like weeks, the early indicator, then you're going to have some problems because you're, it just takes too long to know. And so what we looked at was, okay, we have one year contracts. So like, how can we figure out if they're successful in the first 60 days? And for us, that really came around to two things. It was like one, are they installing integrations like Slack and Teams? Because that naturally drives up participation rates for their employees. And then two is our administrators taking feedback and completing the loop. 
So we call that a win. So it's a feature in our product where um, you get the feedback from your employee, you put them on an action board, you say we're going to do something about it, and then when it's completed, and it could be as simple as, hey, I like, I want Doritos, we bought Doritos, it's now in the snack bin, you move it to the win column, that notifies everybody that you got something done because of Tiny Pulse. And so, so wins kind of completes what we call our Pulse framework. And so, so our goal is we want to get two wins, one integration in the first 60 days. Cool. Yeah, I like I like that hole in the first sixty days. There's a great um, uh, video by a guy named Joey Coleman about the first hundred days, and it talks about just your customer engagement and some different strategies to really engage with customers in the first hundred day period that you have them, and how to um, share things like videos and text messages and physical gifts and emails and letters, and just have this kind of automated touch program to really show them some love. And, and I like that you're kind of measuring it that you want two of those those win cycles i guess mm-hmm. um okay so so how how have you handled this integration stuff where you've got this complexity of i guess clients are thinking it's a tiny software package but they realize it's a little bit more complex in some ways to put it in place and then i've had clients that just think it's brain dead simple to put in place um mm-hmm. is it simple or that or well it's it's <laughs> Yeah, so this is actually, I think, where we've really, this is where I think we kind of lost track a little bit. So when we first built, it was called Perform at the time, which was kind of our performance side of the house, there was no fast value because you literally had to go in. The only way you could use it is if you added goals, they had to be smart goals, and then maybe they had them, maybe they didn't have them. Even if they had them, it would take some time to get them in. So the Perform setup was much more challenging. And so what we realized from engage side was that it was so simple because you literally just put emails and then you know within sometimes minutes you start to get responses back right and so so we've really tried to shape our product principles around that which is one providing fast value and two providing ongoing value so over time with engaged you know do your participation rates stay up you know can we help you keep those participation rates up are you still getting valuable insight without doing a whole lot of work and then this time around we've renamed our performance product coach and so it's really more about getting coaching insights. And so the, the goal setup is really simple now if you want to use it or not. Um, we're making that pulse based as well. So an employee, you just pulse an employee and say, hey, you know, is there something you're working on now that you want to add as a goal? So we're, we're trying to take some of that onus off the manager to get all these things set up early. And then I think the one-on-one side of the house is where we can really embrace that pulse framework, which is like, hey, just sync your calendar and then select your one-on-ones. And then from there, it just fires out that pulse, gets you feedback to help you for your one-on-ones so i think that really was a it was a big thing where we kind of lost a bit of sight of like you know, trying to keep things really tiny in the setup portion um and then i think just naturally as we went more upstream bigger clients are just harder you know like they just yeah. they necessarily want that first question you know they have to make sure that things segmented properly and ready to go they got to go through a review with somebody in hr to make sure that, you know so it's like there's not a whole lot we can do about that the more we can go upstream and that, but we think that's okay we think that's okay, okay as long as we keep within a certain window. What what have you learned at Tiny Pulse about how to sell into big companies, and then once you're in the big companies, how to get further in? So I think one of the stories I remember, I think you guys were being used by maybe the finance department at Starbucks, and it was like you know you had one department, but how do we spread throughout that organization like a virus? Have you learned anything first on how to sell to big companies? Secondly, how to get deeper into them? Yeah, so. We don't sell into the big companies, so it's actually not part of our strategy to sell into uh, enterprise, and so we don't have enterprise reps or anything. It's a pure land and expand strategy. So like you said, with Starbucks, 
I think we started with 40 people or something like that. I mean, we have some other clients that we fit. It's very similar. You know, they'll come in with like 40, but they're a 50,000 person organization or 100,000. So it's really a pure kind of land and expand strategy. So one of the ideas that we had in the early days was we used to kind of codename them brag slides. So as a HR, these are usually directors, right? So the director comes in, they've got 50 people, 100 people under them, and they need to figure out like how do they improve retention or how do they keep happiness up or something like that. So we use these QBRs that we automate and we send off to them that kind of shows them what they're doing so they can then take that to their leadership to say, hey, here's how we're doing against kind of my culture initiatives, right? So those brag slides that kind of make them look like a hero. Then what happens is somebody else in that meeting says, hey, I want to do something like that. You know, so it's very, it was very viral, just word of mouth. And then we realized is like we were doing really well with, we call it expansion. And so we assigned one rep to it. And literally that one rep, he just, he's constantly outperforming his quota. He's doing a great job. And so now, you know, we're starting to build that expansion strategy more. But part of that, because we don't sell an enterprise, our product roadmap was never really aligned for that, right? And so right, makes sense. You're, yeah, so you're setting the expansion rep up to fail, the more successful they are, right? Because you all of a sudden expand out, expand out, expand out. And then somebody on top says, hey, that's cool. Can I pull everything together? We're like, nah. We don't really do that, right? So just recently, we've really aligned a, a portion of our product team to focus with that expansion rep on those sales and make sure the feature set that they need is being developed. And so I think that's been a, it's always an interesting challenge for us to, you know, how much do we just focus on S&B and do we ignore these things? Well, that was our decision two years ago, and you know, we lost some really good clients because of that. Now we're shifting to say, okay, well, we're not going to focus our, our outbound efforts on them, but... If we do happen to land that director and those expansion opportunities occur, we are going to make sure we have enough feature set to to keep them relatively happy. So okay, makes sense. Um, on you, I think I talked to you guys the other day, and there's a new module that you're getting ready to release. Can we talk about that, or are we still under wraps with that? Oh, that's okay. So that that's yeah. So so we're calling it Coach 2.0. So Coach. 1.0 used to be just about goals. And so it was really just goal setting, rate your goals. Um, but it was it was kind of stringent, our, our, our release. And so the NPS was really low. But what's really interesting, and um, Scott Dorsey, one of our investors um, from Exact Target, he drew up this quadrant. And he said, what's really interesting is you have, you know, kind of NPS and happiness of your customers over here. And then you have engagement with your product over here. And then, you know, the top right is where your best customers are. They're happy, they're highly engaged. It's like the top left is the high risk quadrant because you don't know. They look really happy, but they're not using it. And so the risk of churning is bad, right? And then the bottom left quadrant, they're dead, right? So they're not happy. They're not using it. They're out. But the bottom right, he said, is your most interesting quadrant. And he called it trapped. So in, in their case, it was like the more integrations you plugged into exact target, the less likely you were to churn. And so even if you were like miserable with the product, it's very hard to rip it out. And somebody said that was an awesome opportunity because we'd study those customers and our whole goal was just, hey, let's just delight them a little bit more and move them up into the top quadrant. And so Coach was kind of like that for us. We had this product goal setting that once you get it in and all your managers are using it, it's really sticky. It's hard to pull out because if five out of 10 managers find it valuable, the other five don't, you know, you got, a, you got an interesting debate going on what you're going to do with your software. And so, so we've really chosen to expand out that product set. And what we found was with goals, so two things. One, people don't really like rating. And so we went more feedback oriented. And so the, the redesign of goals is launching together with one-on-one. And one-on-one is where we found out that's our strength is pulsing, right? And so if we can help managers do more effective one-on-ones, 
you know, the problems they have is they don't, they don't, it's hard for them to plan. It takes them a lot of time, but just by getting a little feedback from the employees beforehand, like, how are you feeling this week? You know, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate that? And then what would you like to be on the agenda? What are you proud of? You know, some more, more inspirational things that help that manager come in prepared to that one-on-one discussion. Um, and, and, and our early tests has been the really positive feedback on people using it. And so, Kind of Coach 2.0 is basically re-releasing the suite, which will be 360 feedback, goals, but a really, really tiny goals module. It's literally like goal, goal description, due date, and then progress bar. That's it. And comments, and then one-on-one, which is kind of where we really want to lead with. So yeah, so that's so really, what's coming out. Really coaching focused, more than coaching focus. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Coaching so, focus. So you're at over 100 employees now, I think. Yes, correct. So over 100 employees, two countries, lots of growth. Where have you had to grow over the years as a leader? I think the probably like one is consistency. So I'm more, and I'm kind of an entrepreneur. And so like my dad had multiple companies and, you know, this was kind of interesting for me to take a number two position and then also just to grow a company this big. So my outsourcing firm was 70 people, but it's very different because they're kind of compartmentalized into projects for a client. And so you're kind of, I don't know, a bit different. Like we didn't have a hierarchy structure like we have here. And so I think one was just being consistent. And so I had to really learn that, um, you know, that my time to my reports is very valuable. And so, you know, not, not, and I think that's something that I've really tried to improve. And then two, um, I don't know if you know Kevin Dom, but he's, he's on the speaker tour. Like he's a, he's an interesting guy. So he's got that yeah. compelling message through storytelling. And so when he talked and he, his, breaking point is like 100 employees. So he says, once you get to 100, your messaging, it's going to be so challenging for you to say something and then have this employee over here actually get the same message. And so he said, just go back and do a test. You know, ask your team anything, right? And then ask 10 different people the same question and see what the answer is. You know, something they think they should know. So I decided product vision, you know, should be pretty straightforward. And literally, it was like, 300 different words or something crazy like that when you do the word count on it. So we really went through an exercise around visioning and, you know, making sure that there's just that clear and concise statement of provide a platform for leaders to grow happy, high-performing people. And now everybody knows it, right? But it's like the amount of work we had to do versus when we were eight people in the room, it was like, hey, yeah, we're talking, everybody knows it, you know, you're pretty straightforward. 100 is a lot more challenging. So I think that was... I think that was probably the second one was just getting more professional, I think with my messaging and trying to, you know, really, you know, you have to do it five to seven times before it really like sits and then you have to reset it again. And so, you know, so I think that's probably the two areas I've had to develop most was my consistency and then my kind of, I don't know, I guess, focus on that messaging. It's funny. Jim Collins mentioned, I think in good to great that a leader has to um, constantly communicate the message to the point that our, our employees are making fun of us and only when they make fun of us have our ideas started to stick. Um, yeah. like, wow. like it's that whole, I told you, well, yeah, they didn't, they didn't hear you or they didn't get it or they were busy or they forgot. Yeah. So you said something earlier on about um, that you and Dave engage in really healthy conflict. Can you tell us how you, how you do that, how you work through the, the conflicts that, that we need as a leadership team to grow? Um, I think a good example I mean, probably maybe yesterday, we were literally sitting here Sunday afternoon, you know, finishing up the board deck, and we started getting into this, like, conversation around deadlines, right? And we have very different views around deadlines, and we've had different views around deadlines for a long time. And so, as we started getting this conversation, and 
Allison was like, hey, is that going to help us finish the deck? Yeah, probably not. And then we take a breath and we just move forward, right? And so sometimes there are things like that where we just get off on these tangents, but we're pretty good about like refocusing. Like, you know, David, I mean, he's like probably the most organized person I've ever met. And so, so I think it's very easy sometimes for us to get off track, but then pretty easy to, to get back on track. But I think like, and for the most part, you know, we also, ever since we started getting, I think getting a lot more laser focused. So Scott Dorsey talked about having yearly themes. And so two years ago, we started that. And so once you kind of have your, your overall mission in place, which has been pretty clear, and then we have a very clear product strategy of what we want to focus now, it's also very easy too, because then you have your yearly theme. So then it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, if we've got a decision around something for a customer and it's not dealing with like delighting them and being personal and proactive, which is our theme for this year. And there's another initiative that's actually exactly on that. And we're trying to argue for resource. We're probably going to stick with our theme and stick with our strategy. Yeah. So it becomes easy. Um, I heard a, um, so I was at this global leadership conference, uh, this guy, Warren Rustan, who was amazing. And he was saying that he, he was saying that stress is very simple. It's only cause because something that you have, uh, a moral belief or a value or you're, you're considering doing something that you that conflicts with your moral beliefs or values so and that causes you stress because you don't you don't know what to do right but if you're very convicted about your your values that makes it very simple because okay here's the decision it conflicts with this value i don't do it right and so you know he simplifies it it's really hard to do in practice but we try to do that so we say okay does that align with the strategy does it help us expand does it help us expand out with coach no okay does it hit these goals no you know, here's our seven core values. Is it conflict with one of them? You know, so, that, so I think we're pretty good at being rational about those things too. So yeah, Warren Rustend is like an exceptionally strong leader as well. I mean, this is a guy who played tennis on the lawn of the White House with Gerald Ford. Yeah, I think he's built three billion dollar companies. Is he an investor? He's not an investor. No, I got to meet him for the first time. So I was, because I was president of the Vietnam chapter last year, I was oh, able to go okay. to this. It's called GLA. So it's basically once you're a president, then they bring you out there and you get to spend this five days with Warren. And it's amazing. I mean, it's like 16 hour days. You know, they get you up at five in the morning, you journal 10, 10, 10, you know, which is a habit I've kept since then. You exercise, right. and then you meet for breakfast. And then at 9 p.m. when you're done with all the stuff, you then meet with your smaller group, your forum, for like two hours. And so you literally finish at 11 at night, and they just like, and Warren's there the whole time, you know, at his age. Wow. It's like, yeah, the whole time. And this is an amazing experience. Amazing. Yeah, so that's the, the Global Leadership Academy at, for the Entrepreneurs Organization, right? Yeah, 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 yeah Washington, D.C. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, EO is an amazing organization. What do you think were the big um, things that you pulled? I mean, we started started a network called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. And I really, I got the idea from being in EO and being, you know, around YPO and Vistage where there's all these amazing networks for the entrepreneur, but there's really nowhere for that COO to be. So you're acting right now as the second in command, chief product officer. Um, what do you think you get out of being in a, an organization like EO? What does that give you? I mean, I started the chapter in Vietnam, and so we always had to kind of communicate the value to people. And what we always say is that, you know, once you finish university and you go into business, and I think it applies whether you're a COO or whether you're a, a, an entrepreneur, um, it's kind of the same thing. It's like it's, it's kind of lonely because you're at the top to some extent. And even as a COO, you know, as much as you're going to share with a CEO, CEO there's some stuff that's just like, man, I got to make this decision. I got to figure this out. And I don't know exactly what to do. You know, I'm not going to talk to my wife about it. My friends don't understand. You know, they're not 
in the same position I am. I can't quite go to the CEO trying to figure it out for him, or maybe I don't want to because I want to do this on my own. So who do I go to, right? And that's yeah. CEO. They connect you with like-minded people that have the same problems as you, and it's grounded in just all, which is you don't give advice ever. And so now I feel so comfortable to talk to like you if you're an EO because I know if I say, you know what, I'm having problems with churn, you're not going to say you should do this, this, and this, but you're going to tell me, you know what, I have two, or so-and-so has two, and they're going to share their experiences. And that's just an amazing forum. Yeah, you mentioned a term called the Gestalt Protocol. Gestalt Protocol is sharing experiences, not opinions, not, uh, you know, it's interesting. Google actually operates quite strongly from that protocol as well, where they say, I don't care what you think, what's the data say? Yeah. Um, people, people will often say, well, I think we should do this. It's like, well, I don't really care what you think, what's the data say? Now, it's nice to have opinions, but I think experience does weigh out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, where, where are you guys struggling or where, where do you struggle as a leader? Where have you had to, to work on recently? And, you know, like, I think that um, recently, I would say things have been a lot better. You know, I think our biggest struggle was probably about a year, year and a half ago. And I think as we kind of, we raised money, we grew fast. You know, I felt like we had some hires that I think they were amazing, smart people, but maybe not quite stage appropriate. And then the culture went from being like, you know, we measure this stuff, right? That's what we do. So we're like, man, our happiness score is like nine. We're perfect. Everybody's happy. And then all of a sudden, you start to grow and you change from 20 people to 100 people. And for those 20, it's not the same company that they thought it was. You know, then you have different personalities come in. So you struggle to kind of keep the culture. And I think we really had to, um, and it was like probably like the, the I think David wrote an article in HBR about it too. It was a kind of five-year, what happens with the five-year wall, right? Where your culture has changed because you've grown to a certain stage. And I think to me, actually, that was the biggest challenge. Like I think now when we're trying to deal with decay, improving churn, it looks like it's getting better. All that stuff is so much easier when the team is aligned. You know, you've got a happy team. They're performing well. They all understand the mission. Um, so I would say, I would say our biggest hurdle to be the hardest part, hardest time period was that time period. And I feel like now, you know, our glass door scores have gone back up or happiness scores are good. Um, and, you know, I don't even know exactly how we changed it, but I think that the main thing was just getting people focused on performance and helping them do their jobs well. And yeah. You, so. um, you guys have a lot of data and a lot of insights into employee engagement and, and creating great work environments. What do you think is the, the you know, what, what are some of the one or two top things that employees um, look for, you know, or, or want for a company to be a better place to work? And then what do you think they appreciate most about each other? So I think for the first one, um, it's actually the data is pretty clear. It's that they, they have a, a very clear understanding of, of why they're there, what's their purpose, what are their objectives, and, you know, how do they grow? And so what's really interesting is when we uh, kind of do this annual thing on the happiest industries, it's almost always construction. And construction is really interesting because you go to work, you know, you're going to build something that's tangible, right? So you're something you're very proud of. Um, you have a very clear role. It's like, you know, you're in charge of like beams, right? You want to make sure the structure is stable. You know, I'm going to go to the glassware. So like, you know, so it's a very clear and then you also have a very awesome tangible product. And so, and it's interesting because software, people always think, oh yeah, that's, that's going to be up there. It's never up there. It's like middle of the pack. And it's so challenging. It's so challenging because a lot of times your work is a bit abstract. You know, you may or may not use the lines of code you're writing. You've got all the perks in the world, but so does everywhere else. So you don't care. You know, and then it's not as clear what your career path is. It's not as like cut and dry, right? And so developing career plans for engineers is challenging. And so what ends up happening is, you know, it's kind of a middle of the road happiness. It's sort of like, yeah, I'm, I'm working really hard and I want the big exit and I want to be a unicorn. 
but so few companies you know get that right and even the ones that get that how painful was it to get there right like 60 70 hour work weeks you know we we do them every now and then but it's it's challenging you know like it wore me out last week i was pretty darn tired on the weekend and i don't want to do it all the time you know but that's kind of the culture like i was at microsoft kind of in the HR revolution days where they kind of went from where, you know, everybody just like, well, yeah, I got hired and they're just like, you know, you're probably gonna work 12 hours a day. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And then it all changed, you know, because they got sued by the government. They had, you know, just different, like the lawsuits around the contractors versus full-time employees. Sure. They literally like triple the HR staff, like almost overnight and started putting policies in place. And, and it really took them up to Satya to change the culture, right? It was pretty wow. toxic for a while. It's pretty toxic. And so tech is challenging. It's challenging. Interesting. And then what do they appreciate most about each other? What do employees appreciate most about each other? Working with smart people. So I think it's, uh, it's interesting. So you're, you're, they always say they want to work with people. It's almost similar to the, the first thing, which is, hey, you know, they feel happy at their job if they're successful at their job and if it's very clear where they're going. Because if it's not clear, it's really hard to be successful. So it's almost the same thing. It's like, hey, if you've got people you're working with that you're aligned and they're helping you be successful, that's what you appreciate most about it. And, you know, and then the, the, the better of a performer the person is, the more likely they are to have that tendency. And so I was listening to Simon Sinek um, watching this video last night, and he was saying that what's really interesting about people, he's like, everybody has the potential to perform well, just maybe not in this job, right? And so that's like right. a, leader's, you know, a leader's job is to get them in the right place, and it may not be at your company, you know? Yep. And so, and if you have them, and they're, they're there and they drag other people down, it's going to be challenging for them. So I think that's the number one thing about the peers. That's cool. I'm glad Simon gets that. He, um, Simon was on our board for uh, about 12 months back around 2003, 2004 at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. <clears throat> yeah, we knew him years before he ever did his TED Talk or before he wrote Start With Why. Good guy, sharp guy. Um, all right, final question. Dave, if you were to give your 21-year-old self some advice, if you were to... to you know, lean backwards and tell yourself something that would help you in your career today. What do you wish you'd known earlier that you now know to be true? Um, don't drop out of school for four years, work at Microsoft and be a millionaire in five. <laughs> I literally was like, I graduated high school, the perfect time to graduate college at the beginning of the rush. And I was in Seattle, but I, you know, long story, tore ligaments in my knee, mom passed away, dropped out of school, went back. But, but no, I think like on a more serious side, I think that's, um, I think at 21, I, I really wish I had more of the, the, just even the small disciplines that I have now. So I think at, at 21, you know, I was kind of ADD and looking at different things. Actually, I was in a tennis and so I, was, I had torn ligaments so I couldn't play competitively. So I saved money, opened up a shop. You know, I was really ambitious, but I lost all my money again. And, and I think that like at 21, I, I kind of wish I would have learned a little bit more like kind of discipline like habits like, because I think that is one of the key things with some of the successful people out there. Look at EO. And just a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're very routine, you know, and like they, they, they learn how to establish routines and they make sure that, you know, they're, they're holding themselves accountable. And, you know, 21, I was just, I was like a gunslinger. I just wanted to do everything and I was overconfident. So I would say, you know, take a step back, get some mentorship. You know, whether you finish school or not, I don't think it would have really mattered. I think if I had a more disciplined approach to what I was doing. So yeah. that's probably it. I I love those disciplines. That's that's the reason we um, I co-authored the book Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs for exactly that reason. It's how do we actually give those success habits that exist? Yeah, Aju, the Chief Product Officer and Second in Command for Tiny Pulse. Thanks very much for sharing with us today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command. 
brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.